0: The most significant people in your life are the people that invest in you spiritually. There's no one more important in your life than those that care about your soul because there's nothing more critical to your life than your relationship with God. I remember when I was in Bible college and I had some friends of mine come over to me and uh, they asked if they could sit down with me and they did. And as we engaged in conversation, they let me know that they'd seen Pride just really emerged out of my life in a number of ways. They were confronting me on it in love in Jesus' name. I remember at first I was so offended. I was actually upset. I mean, who were they to come to me about pride? But as I prayed about it, the Lord really revealed to me that I had become incredibly arrogant and proud. And the Lord used them in my life pivotally, and they've been good friends throughout my life. We need each other. We need each other because. We live in the world whose values are completely opposite and at times antagonistic to Christian values because we live in a world where the enemy combats us and he longs to defeat us. We live in a world where our own sinful nature struggles to follow God's ways and how he would have us to live. And so today, as we continue in our series through hitting the marks of a healthy church, we come to this topic deeply devoted what does it mean that God has called us to be pivotally involved in each other's lives? What does it mean that God has called us to be used by Him in each other's lives to call each other to likeness? Hear these words from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 3. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness notice some of the words you are to what see to it that no one has a sinful unbelieving heart well how do you know if someone has a sinful unbelieving heart you need to know them this is an intentional purposeful investment in someone's life that requires both examination and note encouragement encourage each other daily as long as it's called today, so that you'll never be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Never be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin deceives us. How many times have I met with people who at one time had a vibrant walk with Jesus, who are deceived by sin and its pleasures or its promises, and find themselves following the enemy, or the ideology of the world, or their own sinful nature, rather than what God would have them do. And God's way is always good, God's way is always freeing. So in this passage, the author is really clear, be invested in each other, be deeply devoted to each other. Hebrews 10 says this, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he that's God who promised is faithful. And let us consider, that's a strong word, it means to contemplate, to purposely think through how we can spur each other on toward love and good deeds. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see that day, that's the day of Christ approaching. So a couple of things here. We're to consider to purposely contemplate how we can invest in each other's lives, how we can spur each other on toward loving good deeds. We're to gather and not give up gathering. We're doing that virtually right now. And soon we'll be able to gather in person. We look forward to that. This is what God is calling us to. And again, the word encourage. Encourage each other daily as long as it's called today. But why is genuine fellowship hard? There's a variety of reasons, but let me offer three. The first is this, it's none of my business. It's none of my business. I actually feel as if I don't have the right to speak into your life, as if it's not something I'm allowed to do. It's none of my business. Second one is this, it's none of your business. You don't feel you have the right to speak into my life. You don't feel that's something you should do. Part of that has come in our culture because we celebrate and accept others' choices regardless of the ramifications of those choices. And the only comment we may make is, well, it's not hurting anyone else, or it's not hurting anyone. But sometimes we miss that our choices, though they may not be harming anyone else, in essence, are harming us because they're driving us from the heart of God instead of toward His heart. The third is this, so it's none of my business, it's none of your business. Number three, accountability is easier than accessibility. Accountability is sin reporting. It's gathering in your group, covenant, community, ministry team, and reporting to a group how you sinned the last week or how you didn't sin. Accountability is simply sin reporting, but accessibility is investment in each other's lives and such investment that as you do so, you actually allow people to speak in to the way you're living, to speak into who you are. And one of the ways we try to do that is through our covenant groups, through our community groups, through our ministry teams. As we we grow as a congregation into a larger group of people gathering on Sundays, we wanna shrink as a congregation into each other's living rooms. As we gather to study God's word, to pray, to know who each other are, to invest in each other's lives and to be deeply devoted to each other. And we do the same in ministry teams as we gather to serve the Lord, to get to know each other, to pray for each other, to understand who each other is in those groups and how we can walk alongside of each other. But at some point in time, as you're invested in other Christians' lives, you'll bump up into a scenario where they will sin against you or you will sin against them. And the question becomes, when you sin against someone or they sin against you, what should you do? What happens when we sin against each other? And Church life is more complicated than lives in many places, which is why we might be called the family of God or brothers and sisters of Christ If I have a colleague or friend of mine um, Who's let's say working professionally as a lawyer and something happens at work where there's an altercation of some kind Right and someone has actually wronged someone else They may tell their spouse, but their spouse isn't as invested. They may not even know who the person is may never meet the person but in church what's Sin against you. And if you're married and you have kids, your family knows them. Maybe your kids and their kids are friends. There's actually connection going on. And it complicates how we work through what occurs when we sin against each other. So God in his word brilliantly offers us a few passages of scripture that talk about what we do in a specific instance. Matthew 18 is one of them. Here are these words. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a tax collector or pagan. So when you've been sinned against, this passage offers a few insights. One is this, ensure you've been sinned against. It says this, if they've sinned against you, or if they've sinned, ensure it's sin. Sometimes we've been preference against. Sometimes we've been opinionated against. So people's preference have been different than ours. People's opinions have been different than ours. And sometimes we escalate that to some level of sin. We think that they're disagreeing with us. We think that they're wanting to do something a different way is actually sinful, and it's not. It's simply a preference, an opinion, and it's neither right nor wrong It's a freedom of which God allows us to operate within. And so we need to be very careful as we come to this point that we go, yes, my brother or sister has sinned against me. They've lied about me. They've gossiped, it's clear cut. What they have done is sin. Notice then don't talk to others about it, at least not at first. It says just between the two of you, you go to your brother or sister and you talk to them. You go to them and say, hey, you've sinned against me, right? Probably the conversation starts more like this. I'd, I'd really like to talk to you about something that's occurred between us. I'd love to just have a sit down conversation. Number three, don't let it fester. This is something you wanna act upon quickly. You don't want to let it boil up inside of you and become something that it was never, it may, maybe that it, it never even originally had happened or occurred as. Don't dismiss it. Notice scripture's clear that you are to go to them. You are to talk to them. Don't dismiss it. Don't bury it. Don't pretend it never happened. I remember receiving an email from someone in our church years ago, and uh, they had accused Jordan Spolster, and I have Jordan's permission to tell this story, and I have doing something. We were at a men's meeting. The men's speaker was talking about, you know, men who are overly sensitive. Jordan and I started joking back and forth just briefly about the sensitivities or or lack thereof that each of us has. And as we were joking about our sensitivities or lack of sensitivities, This person was really offended and they assumed we were talking about them though. They sat two tables away clear across the room Nearly two years later months later, right? I got an email from them Expressing hurt and frustration over a number of things. This was one of them I couldn't even remember some of the other none of none of them actually of the things they talked about I couldn't remember this one I could remember and I said to them on the phone listen right now I will hang up the phone you call Jordan and you ask him his side of the story. And what he will tell you is he and I were talking about each other. Never once did we talk about you. Not once did we talk about you. In fact, I don't believe up till that point in time we'd ever talked about you in any way at all, ever. Let alone in that moment. So you can't let it fester. You can't let it boil. You can't dismiss it. Number four, number five, sorry. Remember this isn't about you. If you make this about you, it's arrogant. Now you're hurt, you're wounded, and you want that to be rectified. But this is about God and His glory, and this is about restoring relationship with a brother or sister in Christ. That's what this is about. It's about them and their soul and restoring your relationship with them. If you make this about you, then you will sin in thinking you want restoration. Number six. Talk to the person who sinned against you, in person. This is not an email. This is not a text. This is a face-to-face, or if you're unable to, Zoom or FaceTime conversation. This is not via through some mechanism where you cannot express tone, you cannot read tone, and it's hard to understand what someone's saying, where there's very little opportunity for points of clarification made. This is done in person, face-to-face. Lastly, completely forgive anyone who asks for it. Completely forgive them. Jesus says, if you go to them and they're in in that sense, in that moment, apologetic, you've won them over. If they listen to you, you've, you've won them over. What does that mean? You completely forgive them, entirely, 100%. And when you forgive someone, you're absorbing the hurt and pain that's been caused by this sin. That's why Paul can say in Colossians, You are to forgive as the lord has forgiven you the cross is the greatest example of forgiveness jesus had to die in order to forgive us and we have to die to self in order to forgive others so you need to ensure that you've been sinned against and not just preference against you don't talk to others about it before you talk to them you don't let it fester you don't dismiss it you remember this isn't about you you talk to the person who sinned against you and you completely forgive anyone who asks for your forgiveness. Now, scripture is clear that if you've gone to them and they don't listen, you now take two to three witnesses people who know this has occurred, people who know this has happened, not because you've told them, but because they've observed it. They've either observed this sin in them or they know this person sinned against you. It can't be, well, you know, Dwayne told me. No, it's got to be, no, I've seen this in you too. I know this has happened. So you now bring two or three independent witnesses who come with you and collaborate and say, listen, John, we're coming to you because we see this sin in your life and it's it's sinned against us. And we're worried about your soul and we want you to follow Christ. And you do this in love and in Christ's likeness, but then you take it to the church that they won't listen. Now, how do we do this at Houston? In our earlier years, we'd break to the whole congregation over a business meeting. Now, as our church has grown and taken to the church, we take it to the people within the church that are affected by them. So this might be a community group and a ministry team where we gather the community group, we gather the ministry team and we say, this person is sinning in this way or they sin against so-and-so in this way. They're unwilling to repent in this area. And so we're bringing you together to let you know that we together wanna to come before them and ask them to repent. And if they're unwilling to repent, what do you do? You treat them as a tax collector or a sinner. Now, what does that mean? That means you treat them as someone who is outside of the Christian faith. You treat them as a non-believer. You can still talk to them, but you're no longer fellowshipping with them. Your conversation is about their repentance, their restoration, and their following Christ. But other passages also speak to this. Listen to this. This is from 1 Corinthians 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, so his spirit may be saved, On the day of the lord now when it says here that this man is sleeping with his father's wife it's probably not his biological mother it's probably his stepmom that he's sleeping with and either he's attracted to older women or he's someone who uh this father has married someone who's younger which often happened in those days in second marriages and this guy's wife his father's new wife may be closer to his son's age and so they engage in sexual relations and the church just kind of ignores it, but he's a core part of this church family. Everybody knows it's happening. Everybody knows it's occurring and they just kind of leave it. Paul then offers a few other words. I'm gonna flip down to verse nine. In I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. If I was talking about the people of the world, he says you'd have to go live on Mars. But now I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself or claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler, with such a person do not even eat. Now, I want you to note that we're quick to run to this list when it's sexual sin. But did you see what the second word was? It was, it was greed, it was greed. Now, what is greed? A simple definition of greed is not honoring God with the wealth he's given you, right? God calls all of us to honor the wealth that he's given us without excuse. He said, if you're a believer and I've entrusted you with wealth, you're to honor me with it. I believe starting with a tithe and then moving beyond that to a place and level of generous giving. But he says, if you're not doing that, you're greedy. Greed is robbing God what he's due. So let's just take a moment here and assess our lives. I mean, we've been really thankful. God in miraculous ways has provided for Houston Street through this pandemic but if you haven't been honoring him with your wealth you are greedy and according to this passage we should be handing you over to satan if you're unwilling to repent of your greed and honor god with your wealth that's how serious god takes sin and we should be speaking into each other's lives in this and god doesn't allow for excuses you don't get to say well you know i'd honor god with my life or with my wealth sorry. except i'm getting married i mean i'd honor god with my wealth but i'm I'm still a student i'd honor god with my wealth but it's covid no god calls us to honor him with our wealth because it's his wealth granted to us and it's a matter of trust do i trust god if i can't trust god with my finances how can i ever trust him with my soul verse 12 says this What business is of mine to judge those outside the church, Paul says, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. God says, you have the right here, Paul says, God through Paul, you have the right to judge. Now that will fly in the face of some people. They'll say, well, that's not true. Matthew 7 says, do not judge or you will be judged. And in that circumstance, what he's saying is that we are not individually to hold judgment over others. And that is true. but and. As a congregation, when we assemble, God grants us the right to judge. He grants us the right to do that when there's sin in our midst. So follow this along. This is when someone who claims to be a Christian is walking rebelliously in sin. This is what scripture says. Don't ignore their sin. That's what happens when the passage says they're being proud. Don't dismiss it, but rather deal with it. Grieve over sin. That's why Paul says you're to mourn over it. Sin grieves the heart of God. It should grieve our heart. Sin should remind us of the price that Christ had to pay in order for us to be back in relationship that's restored with him. And so we should grieve over sin. Determine the course of action and community. Paul says, when you're assembled, when you're gathered together, I want you to come with an action, with a plan, and do so in Jesus' name, because you deal with their sin seriously. So it's in the name of Jesus. You hand the person over to Satan. Now that is a strong word, isn't it? Hand them over to Satan. What does that mean? I believe that's the third portion of Matthew 18 Where it says that you're to treat them as tax collector a sinner That as or pagan That that in this moment we're saying you no longer belong to the fellowship of community of believers You're no longer a part of God's people And we're handing you back into Satan's realm We're putting you back over there because you're refusing to repent And why do you do it? It says so. So the flesh would be destroyed, but the soul would be saved on the day of salvation. You're not doing this because you're vindictive. You're doing this as you're mourning, as you're grieving because you long for them to follow Christ. You long for them to repent. You long for them to put him first. You're so devoted to them that you care about their soul more than even your relationship with them. Do you care about people's soul more than your relationship with them? Or do you let their sin continue to grow? Maybe you ignore them, maybe you walk away from them, maybe you stop being with them, but you never invest so deeply in them that you're willing to sit down with them over a coffee and say, I really love you and I love you so much that I either need to point out this sin in your life or I need to point out the way you're sinning against me. Your best friends in life will be the people that care so much about you that they will care about your soul and your with the Lord. Those will be your best friends in life. They're the ones you keep until the Lord calls you home. A Couple other passages. In Galatians 6, Paul offers a few more words and then James in James 5. In Galatians 6, he says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, the word there is trapped, not I caught you, but they're ensnared. You who live by the spirit should restore that person gently But be careful, watch yourselves, or you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in that way you fulfill the law of Christ. And in James 5, it says, brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone brings that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sin. We're to call people to restoration. God spent no expense to restore us to himself. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And we're to expend no expense. We're to spare no expense in seeing others restored to Christ. So note a few ways that the passage talks some language. When you're restoring someone who sinned, it says, be gentle, restore them gently. Man, that's something I've had to work on over the years. Even if you're rebuking or refuting someone, do so humbly and gently, humbly and gently. Avoid temptation. As spirit-filled people, restore those gently who are caught or trapped in sin. Make sure you're not gonna be tempted by the same sin. If you're struggling with the same sin they are, send others, don't do this yourself. Redistribute the weight, did you catch that? It says carry each other's burdens and in that way you fulfill the law of Christ. Find out what's triggering the sin and if it's a burden in your life, Offer to carry the burden with them. Redistribute the weight. And chase after them to turn them back. Remember that if someone wanders, this is James from the truth. You should bring them back. The idea there is they're walking away and you're running after them to bring them back. You're doing so gently. You're doing so lovingly, humbly. You're carrying their burden. But it's intentional, it's purposeful, it's that investment that you're making as you care for them. So what happens if you're on the receiving end of this and you've sinned? Well, the first thing you do is you repent. You come before God and you repent of your sin. You tell him that you are wrong and that you're sorry. Then you ask your friend for forgiveness. You let them know that you're sorry that you've sinned against God and against them. And you ask them to forgive you. You thank your friend for loving you this much. Did you hear that? You thank your friend for loving you this much or this large. And then lastly, you follow a restorative process because maybe this sin has trapped you or ensnared you. Maybe it's been there because of a brokenness in your life, because something that needs to be made whole, because it's a habitual habit, a pattern in your life that needs to be broken, because it's attached itself, this sin, to your very soul. Maybe it's a rebellious spirit and the Lord wants to break all those things. And now you need to submit to restorative process to godly people. Maybe it's your friend that you go to and say, I need my soul restored. Would you walk with me as you walk with the Lord? And when you're uncertain, if someone comes to you accusing you of sin and you're not certain. First, before you dismiss this, ask God by his spirit to search your heart, to see if they're accurate in what they're saying. Ask a couple of god friends to speak into your life, to say, this is what I've been told. Do you think this is true about me? And own what you can of your friend's hurt feelings. There are times in my life when people have said I've sinned against them and I actually don't agree. I may have preference against them, I may have opinionated against them, but I have not sinned against them. But I can still say to them, I'm sorry that you were hurt by what I did. I can still own that. So what does this mean for us as I wrap up? God longs for us to be deeply invested in each other's lives so much so that we care about each other's soul, even if for a time It brings interruption in our friendship and when someone has sinned against me i'm not out to be vindicated or to be righted i'm out for the glory of god because i want him to be glorified in their lives and for their restoration i want their soul to be right with god and so their sin should not cause me anger but mourning and grief as i long for them to be restored to the lord jesus christ himself so hear these words as I close off. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other as long as it's called today so that no one may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And consider how you can spur one another on toward loving good deeds. Never give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. The best friends you will ever have in this life are the ones who care about your soul and your walk with Jesus Christ. Lord, this is a hard word. We'd rather walk away and say, it's not my business, none of my business, and it's none of their business. We'd rather be accountable than accessible. And yet God, you call us to be deeply, deeply devoted in each other's lives. May that be so at Houston Street Baptist Church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.